Well, we are uh, continuing on in the book of Revelation. If you have a Bible or device, you can turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation is a word that literally just means unveiling. It is God unveiling truth to people that maybe they previously did not know. And so chapter 1 reveals for us the fullness of God and the fullness of Jesus in his deity. So there's all these crazy things about him like eyes of fire and the mouth like a sword and all these things. We see Jesus at his full deity. And then chapters 2 and 3 begin to go through these letters written to the specific churches of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And some of you might be like, are we ever going to finish these letters to the churches? Good news, today is the last one. Next week, we'll jump into Revelation 4. This is the easy stuff. We haven't even gotten to the difficult stuff in Revelation yet, but I love the letters to the churches because it tells us so much about who we are. Last week, we covered the Church of Philadelphia, which is a fun church to talk about because it is a church that is doing really well. It's a church that loves the Lord. They don't receive any rebuke or criticism from Jesus. Instead, he tells them, you're going to have an amazing opportunity to reach the world because you have this open door because of your faithfulness and your trueness, because you haven't denied my name. And he gives these amazing blessings to the people of Philadelphia, the believers who have been faithful. He says, I will make you into pillars in the temple of God. That is security, which everyone desires security in their life. He says, I will write on him the name of my God. That's God saying, you are my people. And he says, I will write the name of the city of my God. He says, you have citizenship in the kingdom of God. And then he says, and I will write my own new name on you, which means they have an intimacy with Christ. And so they have all these blessings. And so we look at Philadelphia, and I finished last week by saying, this is the church that we should long to be. That any church should say, I want to be like Philadelphia. But this week, we're going to look at a different church, and it's quite the opposite. This week we're going to look at the church of Laodicea. And it's not like Philadelphia. It's very different. My wife likes coffee a lot. A lot of women like coffee a lot. A lot of people like coffee a lot. But I've noticed this thing, and hopefully this isn't sexist. Hopefully. Women, my wife likes coffee hot. I mean scorching, melt my face off hot. Right? And so she'll make a cup of coffee and she loves to take it straight out of the Keurig. And then you can see women, they do this little like, mmm, right? It's a little cozy, mmm. They love it hot. And my wife likes it, so I, but, but my wife is a very busy woman. And so she'll set the cup of coffee down. She's running around doing all these other things with the kids. And so she comes back and then it's room temperature. And that might as well be garbage to her. And so she will microwave the cup of coffee. Until it's even hotter than it was coming out of the Keurig. And then, mmm, cozy and warm and all that good stuff. I've watched my wife microwave the same cup of coffee at least four times. Because she gets so busy doing other things and sets it down. But she loves that hot, hot coffee. I am the opposite. I don't really like hot things because I'm always hot. And so I drink almost everything I drink out of my hydro flask. And when I drink out of my hydro flask, I don't put like two pieces of ice in it. I fill it to the tippity top with ice. And then I put already cold iced tea in there or iced coffee, whatever it is, 
And I love hydro flasks because ice will last for days. It's freezing cold, and it makes me so happy. I'm like, mmm, cold, like different, but the same. Mmm, so happy, right? I want my beverage to be refreshing, exhilarating. I don't want to feel like I'm drinking lava, like my wife does. So why would I bring up the beverage preferences of my wife and I? If you've read Revelation 3 before, I'm sure you've figured that out. We're going to get to that. But, before we do, Laodicea is a city that is the southeasternmost city of these seven. Can I get that map? You can see it southeast. It's, we are finally completing this loop, right? We started in Ephesus, went north, over, and around, and now we're at Laodicea. And so we've completed this loop of churches. This church is financially very successful. The, the city itself, not the church. The city is financially successful. It is known for banking. It's known for being a, a good place for trading goods. And here's the thing you need to understand about Laodicea is they pride themselves on three specific things. The, the city as a whole takes great pride in the fact that they are wealthy financially. In fact, they're so wealthy that when an earthquake destroyed the entire city in the year 60 A.D., Rome offered to rebuild it, and they're like, no, nah, we're good. And they rebuilt their entire city by themselves. So they have a lot of money, and they're very proud of that. They also have a specific kind of sheep, which is a funny thing, but they have bred sheep in Laodicea that are jet black, and they can make wool garments out of this wool that are very highly sought after. And so they have these textiles that they're very proud of. They say, we have Laodicean wool. And then there's also a medical school in Laodicea that is famous for having a specific kind of eye salve that you can put on your eyes, and it's made of Phrygian powder. And there's people that believe that it has amazing healing abilities. And so they're very proud of that. So they have money, they have their garments, and they have their eye salve. This is incredibly important as we read this letter. Those three things, finance, garments, and ISELF, are the things that this city points to and says, look, we're successful, we're good, all on our own. Keep those things in mind as we read this. And if you have your Bible, open up chapter 3, verses 14 through 22, and it'll be on the screen as well. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, 
So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, and I also conquered and sat down, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he starts this letter as he does each letter by Jesus gives some self-description of who he is. And most of the letters, it comes from chapter 1, but the last letter in Philadelphia, it didn't. It came from the Old Testament. And this one, it doesn't come from chapter 1 either. It comes from all over the Bible. And he says, I am the Amen. This is an interesting term because this is one of the only places in the Bible where this term is used as a title. It says, I am the Amen. Because the word Amen you might know, literally means truth, or so be it, or certainty. When someone in a church that is not as white and Midwestern as us says, amen, that means, that you, I agree, absolutely, yes. It's transliterated from Hebrew, the word amin. And so right from the beginning, Jesus is saying to Laodicea, I am the truth. Everything that I say is accurate. And then he doubles down on this idea and he says, I am the faithful and true witness. Not only does he speak truth, but he is truth and his truth is completely reliable and authentic. Faithful and true witness. This reminds me, I don't know if you guys watch shows that are like procedural police shows, CSI, stuff like that when somebody is a witness, but they remember everything wrong, and then the police officer will say like, yeah, you know, first-hand witnesses are rarely, they, they aren't right. They're so pressured that they don't get things right. So Jesus is saying, I am the faithful and true witness, and what I say is completely accurate. I don't misremember things. I'm not wrong in my assertions. He says, I have everything under control, and it's absolutely true, and it stands in stark contrast to the unfaithfulness of the Laodicean church. And then the last descriptor he has of himself is very interesting. He says, I am the beginning of God's creation. As if being perfect truth wasn't good enough, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm the beginning of all of God's creation. Now, some people have misunderstood this verse. Specifically, if you talk to somebody who is Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, they will point to this verse and they'll say, see, Jesus is created. He was chronologically created at the beginning of time. And that's heresy. Because Jesus is God. And so it doesn't mean He's the beginning chronologically. It means, and if you actually look at the Greek word, the word is arche. It's the same word in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word arche does not mean beginning chronologically. It means the source. It is where everything comes from. And so Jesus is saying, I am the beginning of God's creation, as in everything that exists, exists because I am its source. So in all of this, Jesus is establishing that he is reliable to them. He writes this, book, this letter to Laodicea, and he's saying, I'm going to write you some things, and they're going to be hard to hear. 
but I want you to know that I am reliable. I am the truth. My existence is truth, and everything that's true in all of existence is true because I made it. So you can trust me. And then he speaks the words that brought to mind my beverage desires. Verse 15, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now there's a traditional way to understand this Scripture. And the idea has kind of always been, the way that I was, was taught, is that God wants you to either be on fire for the Gospel, passionate, heated for the Gospel, going out there and doing the work, or He wants you to be completely cold to the Gospel so that at least He can convict you of your sins and hopefully bring you back into the fold. And that is a totally acceptable way to understand this story. In fact, I think it is a, a correct way because there really is this idea within churches where people are either on fire for the Lord or they live indifferently to the Lord. One pastor calls them Christian atheists. People that claim the name of Jesus, but they live their life as if God doesn't exist. And so this is the idea of hot or cold. These people are straddlers. They're complacent, half-hearted. And, and this is a totally acceptable way to understand the story. But there's an interesting another way to understand this story. And it comes from a very specific thing about Laodicea. And it answers, it, this idea answers the question because some people would say, why would God say that he wants people to be cold to the gospel? And so the answer could be, well, if you're cold, then you can be convicted and you can come back in. But there's another idea. And I'm, again, I said at the beginning of this sermon series, I don't want to teach what to believe. I want to teach you about Revelation and hopefully you can come to your own conclusions from the Word of God. But there's an interesting way to understand this. Laodicea, a specific thing about their city that's interesting is they don't have their own water source. Now, in an ancient world, or even now, if you don't have water, you die. You have to have water. And Laodicea somehow was established and built up, and it does not have water. And so the only way for them to get water is to pipe it in from other places. And there's two main places that Laodicea would pipe their water in from. One is a city about six miles north of them called Hierapolis. And Hierapolis is known for having hot springs. Water that you can go and you can get into and it will bring you rest and relaxation and health. There's another place that the water comes from and it's 11 miles to the uh, east of Laodicea, and that's Colossae. And Colossae is known for cold, refreshing spring water that is coming out of the ground. And so you have these two ideas in Laodicea, the hot spring water from Hierapolis and the cold, refreshing, healthy water from Colossae. But the problem is they have to pipe in all of this water from miles and miles away. So whenever the water gets to them, whether it started in hot springs or started in refreshing springs, it's lukewarm and it's dirty 
and it's gross. And so even though they have this idea like, oh, the hot springs or the cold refreshing, it all gets there and it's just lukewarm. So this is something that they understand on a deep level. So another way to understand this metaphor is that Christ is telling them, I want your faith to either be hot and soothing and mmm, or I want it to be refreshing and healthy and crisp. But I don't want it to be lukewarm. I don't want it to just kind of be and be apathetic and meaningless. He says, and if you're lukewarm, he says this this very harsh thing. He says, if you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. And in the original language, you could say, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Strong language. But notice this. This gets lost in this verse. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth if you don't change. He is still calling them to change. He is still giving this church who has basically completely given up on faith, and he's still saying, I want you to come back. He's calling them to repentance just as he does us. And this is one of the most amazing things about Jesus in all of our lives is that he always speaks truth, but he always speaks truth in love. He's always calling people back, calling people to something higher and greater. He could have just as easily said to Laodicea, hey, you've blown it, and I'm done with you. I'm sp- you're, you're gone. I've already spit you out of my mouth. But he doesn't. He gives them this warning. He says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth if you don't change. And yet again and again, he extends his grace to them as he extends his grace to us. And then in verse 17 and 18, he begins to talk about these specific things that Laodicea prided themselves on. He says, okay, I'm, I'm going to speak you out, and, and here's why. Here's what you need to understand about yourself. He says, verse 17, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So, they believed that they were wealthy. And they believed that since they were materialistically wealthy, that they were spiritually healthy. And nothing could be further from the truth for them. All of their faith, all of their confidence was in themselves. And they had stopped trusting God. And so Jesus says, even though you think you're rich, you're actually wretched. Wretched because they are still stuck in their sin. They're still stuck in all of the brokenness because they're trusting in themselves. And he says you're pitiable. And they're pitiable because they don't even recognize it. This is the scariest thing about Laodicea. They don't even know they're broken. 
It says, you're wretched and pitiable. And then he, go, he gets so specific with this because, remember, they prided themselves on their wealth, their garments, and their eye salve. And he says, you pride yourself on those things, but you're poor, naked, and blind. Meaning that nothing that they find their value in is actually valuable at all. They're still in desperate need. And it reminds me when Paul, in his letters, says, I used to think everything I had was so valuable. And now I realize it means nothing. And Jesus continues on in this even further. The Laodiceans are, are living in a way that they believe that their wealth and prosperity can purchase whatever they need. And so Jesus states in, in kind of ironic fashion that, that the things you actually need, you should buy from me. You think you can buy what you need? Okay, so then buy from me gold refined by fire, which is purity. Go ahead and try to buy from me white garments, which are righteousness and the covering of your nakedness. And go ahead and try to buy from me eye salve that will get rid of your blindness so that you can see because in reality, he knows, they know, they cannot buy those things from him. Those things cannot be purchased except for they were purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is the only way that you can get those things. Your monetary wealth cannot give you spiritual health. And they're lost in it. They think they're okay. They don't even know they're broken. And Jesus says, you're poor, blind, and naked. Verse 19 begins to close this short letter. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is an amazing verse. But we miss the most amazing part to me. Because we, we read that verse and we say, oh yeah, I'm uncomfortable with the idea of God bringing discipline. But any parent knows that if you love your child, you're going to discipline your child. Not in an abusive way, but in a reproving, I want you to do good kind of way. But what people seem to miss in this verse is that Jesus starts by saying he loves them. This church that's broken, this church that has completely forgot about Jesus and they're trusting in their own strength. They're, complete, they're far away from Jesus and he starts out by saying, those whom I love, I discipline. He hasn't given up on them. He hasn't cast them aside. He says, I love you and I want you to move to greater things. This church is lukewarm apathetic, lost, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked, and on the verge of being spit out. And then yet, even though all of that, Jesus says, I love you. He speaks truth to them in love, and he calls them to something better. And then in verse 20, he says these words that are some of the most well-known words in all of Revelation. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. 
This verse is quoted all the time, and interestingly, it is quoted all the time about evangelism, about reaching those who don't know Jesus with the gospel, which is great. It's a great verse for that. But notice that in the context of this verse, he's talking to a church. He's talking to people that are already proclaiming to know Him. He's talking to a church that is His church. And He's saying, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And that tells us something that should lead us to be very sober-minded. It is possible to be a church with Jesus' name on the walls, with crosses on the stage, And he's not in there. He's outside because he's been pushed out. But the people are so convinced of their own worth and what they have to offer and how important they are and how their riches are making them good that they don't even realize that he's not in the building. It reminds me of I got to be friends with a guy who was a worship leader who wrote a song called My Jesus. And in one of the main lyrics in the song, he says, My Jesus wouldn't be allowed in my church because the blood and the dirt on his feet might stain the carpet. We get so caught up in ourselves that Jesus is standing at the door knocking and we don't even realize he's not in the building. I've said this before, people have asked me as I've been going through these letters, which church do you think Alliance Fellowship is? I still don't know the answer to that question. But I can tell you that all week as I've been studying this bunch of scripture, I am praying to God that we are not the Laodicean church. I don't want to be people that are convinced of our own greatness and how we have everything together so much so that we don't even realize Jesus isn't in the building. I don't think that's who we are. I see the power of God working in people's lives in this church. I see people loving one another as Jesus would call him or her to do. I see all those things, but I also realize that Laodicea didn't know they were broken. And so I'm praying, God, don't let us be this church. I want to humbly lay our church before Jesus and say, Jesus, and this is scary to do, but say, Jesus, make us more of who you want us to be as an individual, as a family, as a church body, as a, as a group of people that are reaching beyond our walls. Make us closer to you so that our children could know the Lord, so that the people of Gallatin Valley will come to know the Lord through the ministry of the people in this church, so that we are doing what God has called us to do. I want to be more of who God wants us to be. But I also know that we live in a world that is broken. And many of the Bible scholars and commentators that I have read about this say that the wider society that we find ourselves in, America or the world itself, looks a lot like Laodicea. John Stott, one of my favorite Bible commentators of all time, said perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church. Obviously he wrote this 30 years ago. 
than this. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread amongst us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religion. G.K. Beale, another commentator, said, the description of the church at Laodicea is probably uncomfortably close to the situation of the church in our own culture. We must adjust our priorities to place the kingdom first and be willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose, our share in the kingdom of God. And that last part of what G.K. said, is what Jesus is talking about in verse 21 of our Scriptures. He says, To the one who conquers, the overcomer, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Christ makes this incredible promise to His faithful followers, to those who conquer, to those who do not give up, to those who do not deny His name. He says, You will sit with me on my throne understand that like not only i will save you from death and destruction you will sit with me on my throne meaning when the new kingdom of god comes you will actually rule and reign alongside of me that is way beyond anything that we possibly deserve and yet he makes this promise to them this eschatological promise to the future as we start looking towards the future in revelation saying you have a beautiful and amazing future with me in the kingdom of God. And it's this arrow pointing to the ultimate message that Revelation is bringing. That all of Revelation is about bringing creation back to what it is supposed to be. God walking in the garden with mankind. Living in perfect harmony together and with creation itself. Because God's business, I say this all the time, God's business is redemption. It's what he does, it's what he's about, and he calls his children into the family business. He's redeeming that which was lost to sin. He's redeeming the world, and all of this, all of Revelation, spoiler alert, is going to culminate in the redemption of all of creation around its creator. But first, he's redeeming people. Until that day comes, we are in this time where Jesus is calling out to those who are naked and poor and blind and wretched and pitiable. And he's saying, I want you to come in. And I want you to bring me in. He's trying to redeem people that are lost in sin and pride and arrogance. Those who thought maybe they were just fine on their own and they don't need anything from God because they have everything they need. Or some who have just drifted away from knowing that they needed Him. Worship team, you guys can come on up. If you're here this morning and you have not given your life to Christ, not just in name, not just I attend a building that's got the name of Jesus on the wall, but given your life, your whole self, everything about you to Jesus, then I hope that you will do that today. Because if you haven't, you may not know it, but you're still wretched and pitiable and blind and naked. We need Jesus. 
No matter how much we think, like, I've got enough, I'm good, I can take care of myself, we don't even know we're lost sometimes. If you're here and that's you, then you can just pray something simple to Jesus, like, Lord, I need you. I'm poor and blind and naked without you. Please save me from my sin and change my heart. If you do that, I believe that God will meet you in this place and he will begin to redeem you and to restore you. If you prayed something like that, if, if you're going to pray something like that, I would love to pray with you. I'm going to be up here during the last song. There'll be a couple prayer partners. Or if you need prayer for anything else, if you're going through some sickness or if you're hurting in this world that is broken, we would love to pray for you for that as well. Don't allow yourself to be like the believers in Laodicea that might proclaim the name of Jesus, but you live as if God is not alive. He is alive. And he wants to be a part of every aspect of your life. He wants to be in the building. And so let's pray and let's just ask God again to come in so that he's not outside knocking and we don't even realize he's outside. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the word in Revelation. The difficult and challenging word to Laodicea, God, would we open our hearts and if we are blind to even knowing that we're lost, would you open our eyes with your eye salve that is far greater than any powder. And God, if anybody is putting up walls of defenses against you, God, would you tear those things down? how desperately in need of you we are and we can be redeemed. God, I thank you for the work that you're doing and I pray, God, scary prayers. Would you show us who we are how we can grow, how we can become closer to being individuals, families, and a church that are what you desire for us. I pray in Jesus' name.